we are in the book of Colossians, and um, I just kind of want to start off with this slide this morning. Um, I was so excited uh, with the text last week. I was so excited with the text last week because um, the way um, Dempsey handled it was, was perfect, and he covered exactly one half, uh, first half of, of a piece that I was really hoping we could swirl in on. So background is, uh, I've been kind of meditating a lot on Ephesians for the last year. We taught on Ephesians years ago and um, as a church here, but I've been kind of working us on my own personal Bible memory in Ephesians and chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, kind of petered out halfway through chapter two, you know how those memorization efforts go. Um, but I did a lot of a lot of meditation on it, and um, so I love a lot of the themes. And, and I've been going back trying to resurrect chapter one and chapter two into my mind. And so uh, Ephesians swirls heavy in my mind, and Ephesians swirls heavy in my mind. And what's interesting is that Ephesians and the book of Colossians are both written, we think, at the same time from the same prison. And if you read them next to each other. They're all kinds of the same things back and forth. But Ephesians definitely has stuff in it that Colossians doesn't have. Ephesians is six chapters. Colossians is four chapters. And they both kind of have a front and a back half. And, there's, and uh, while there are new things in both of them that are very helpful and very enlightening, and they are uh, very fine points of theology that God is giving to the church, uh, a lot of help is really gained in seeing the parallel pieces because we know they're emphatic and also they, they expand upon one another. And uh, our passage last week and this week um, hit one of those passages, and so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm excited about it because um, I think it, it really elaborates something that's happened in, um, in like Christendom for the last maybe 15, 10, 15 years. Um, in, in, in the greater Christian world ecosphere in the past 15 years or so, there's been some pastors and authors um, who've really come upon the scene of, of preaching the gospel, right? And, they, and they've taken that concept of gospel and with a really helpful force of the gospel of grace and really helping people think through and make sure that our human flesh and worth is not part of the gospel equation. They've done a really good job. They have book titles and all kinds of stuff. They do a good job getting our human worth and our efforts out of the equation of the gospel and keeping it that way. Um, but some of those folks have veered into the idea of just because you're, uh, just because you're under grace, you have no need to think beyond that. That's all you need to know, grace. That's all you need to know. And then you can just kind of go back on for your life. You are uh, justified by grace and kept justified by grace, absolutely. But in their view, but sanctification, only God needs to think about sanctification. Only God needs to worry about the changing of you forward. Now, they may not say that in exact words like that, but it's a pretty bad error. Um, and we are, told, we are told to joyfully hold on by them to our secure justification. But Scripture tells us to then also very deeply lean into this thing we call our personal sanctification. Justification is where God declares you righteous but in the courts of heaven, um, free from sin because Christ has paid for that in his death, and full of righteousness because Christ earned that in his life. So he forgives you and makes you righteous. You are justified. It is a statement, it's a judicial statement over you, and it comes into full effect the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It never goes up, it never goes down, it is there. And on this life, I gotta flip my graph going this way here for you guys. Um, in this life, then, being fully justified, we are changed more and more into the holiness of Jesus. The word sanct right? Sanctify. We are sanctified and grown more and more into his likeness. And as we grow, that justification doesn't go up and it doesn't go down. 
the sanctification grows. And the sanctification is an amazing blessing thing to us because it is kind of like our EKG graph that our spiritual heart is beating. If we are justified, we will be being sanctified. And it's not like this, um, even though your spouse may think it. It's not like this, and it's not like this. It is quite often a very janky, jerky thing of falling and repenting and rising and growing and falling and sprinting. And it's, it's quite a moving graph, right? It's kind of an ugly graph, but it's a beautiful one because it's the demonstration that the Spirit of God is at work in us. And so we lean deeply into that sanctification while we hold joyfully onto our secure justification. So that was the thing happening out there. And then these critics come into it, these other pastors come into it. And rightly so, they lower their guns on it. And they, are, and, they, and they go into these people's world and they're already finding predictably rather disastrous lives when you're just like, hey, it's grace and I'm, I'm justified and it's all I need to think about. Um, they find lives that are falling apart and quite disastrous and marriages falling apart, whether it's intentional or not. And, uh, but with that comes, because I feel like so, you know, so much of us in our thinking, we're kind of pendulum people, uh, comes a criticism that, you know what those guys did? They preached too much grace or too far, or grace only was what some of the, cr- the critiques are. But the real problem wasn't that they preached too much grace. It's, cr- it's really the opposite. They preached too little grace is the real problem. They were stopping short. It was only half the grace. It was like the bus ride of grace to no destination of grace. In some sense, it was kind of like the tip of the grace iceberg. And actually, if you really think about it, that grace was only the trip to the iceberg of grace. So a lot of times, uh, and, I've, and I've, I've always saw, sang a lot of songs, the songs are so good to point to both sides of this, but sometimes even in my own thinking, as I start to say things up here or with people, and as we talk, when we think of the grace of God, we are thinking about the trip to God. As gospel thinkers, we think, okay, I get it, I have no worth of myself, I can't, I can't make myself righteous before God. Correct. So I need God's grace poured out through the work of Jesus, accessed by our faith, so by through faith, God saves us by grace. We think about the trip to God, but we think that that is grace, and we don't consider what the trip is to as grace. So I'm going to tip my hand here. I want to talk today from this text in Ephesians about what we are going to in the gospel of grace is to grace, and actually what we are going to in the grace of the gospel is far larger than the trip to grace. Even though the trip to grace is, is stunning and we could probably feel the effects of that more. When we are talking about my sin being forgiven and my alienation, once your enemy now seated at your table, that, that trip, we can, we can get that. We experience brokenness in our world and separation and death in our world so we can really tangibly handle the concept in new ways of the trip, the grace trip to the iceberg of grace. But it's kind of harder to think about that, and I want our minds to go into that. Using the, the gospel stuff that I, that I do here to some great degree, when I go through it, we talk about God making everything. He makes man and women in his own image, and we're designed to be God-centered, but a, instead of being God-centered, we become self-centered, and then God comes to us kindly and offers us something, right? An opportunity to be God-centered again, where he would be our king and be our treasure, and all kinds of benefits that come from that. And if you want that, Christ to be your king and your treasure, the one you love. Now we have to figure out how he gets paid for. <clears throat> I can't do it because I don't have righteousness for the Lord. Christ does it, right? Christ comes and lives and dies again. He is the payment. And as we put our faith in response to the promise of that, 
we receive salvation. When the Spirit is put into us, we get baptized to demonstrate this. And we go on to this life of loving the Lord and loving His people and loving His world. That's where our life dwells. We live a life of response to the Lord. And I think um, this, this, this concept of here, if I could just describe, uh, if I could describe, let's see if my little fancy thing does, does my little feature here. Um, if I was describing the air of what these guys are teaching, they, they talk about this a lot but they don't talk much about this. They're not talking about the new life that's being proposed to you, what God is offering to you. So I want today to, uh, to talk about not simply the trip to the iceberg, um, not the tip of the iceberg of grace, but um, I know it's a cheesy title, live with me. I want to talk about the Graceberg. Oh. Thank you very much. <laughs> we should become related. Um, I want to talk about where grace takes us to, where the trip of grace takes us to. And I think um, this passage and the one in, in, uh, in Ephesians is so helpful in it. And so I hope it's helpful to you. Let me pray that I don't mess it up. Um, Heavenly Father, I just am thankful again that we are yours. I'm really thankful that um, every person that sits in here knows you. I'm so thankful they're deeply loved by you, myself included. I'm so thankful that you've promised these things to us. I'm so thankful that you've given us sanctification so we can see this process, the, the demonstration that you, are, that you have loved us, to see the demonstration that we are justified. I'm so thankful for your spirit to help us um, preach. I'm so thankful for your spirit to help us listen, um, to convict us, to uh, change the way we think, to stir belief in our hearts, to open our eyes to see the superiority of you. And so I pray, Father, you do your thing. I pray that you would keep me from getting in the way of all that. And I pray that you would help us look to you and see the wonders of you in this passage today. So please, out of your deep love for us, we don't have to talk you into your love for us. Out of your deep love for us, please pour out a fresh understanding of the work of grace and the Spirit in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. If you look at verse 7, it starts out with this, and, and um, thanks, thank you, Olivia, for reading it. Um, if I start up in verse 5 a little bit, it says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. It's doing two things. It's bearing fruit and it's increasing. So it's, where it's landing, it's transforming, and then it's expanding out from that under the mission of Jesus. As it also does among you, Colossian believers, so remember, this is a church in the middle of Turkey. As it is also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So last week, Dempsey did a fantastic job of bringing us into the concept of grace, and particularly he covered the front side of it, which is perfect. It was super helpful to me to say, by grace alone are we brought to God, this trip of grace. Only by grace are you brought to God. The tool of that grace is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The way you access that grace is putting faith in that promise. So later on in, Reve in Ephesians, if we think of that verse, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. And then not a works. So that not one of us could ever boast and say, <laughs> good enough right here. Pulled it off. Climbed the ladder myself. No, there's no climbers. There's no pull it offers. It is by grace 
through faith so that God gets all the glory. So in our text today, it says, following on that, just as you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So Epaphras was, shall we say, a missionary, a fellow servant of Paul's. He describes it, a beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And so Epaphras took the gospel, most likely planted the church in Colossae, took the gospel to Colossae, or else was the main teacher for a long time, and he taught them something. They said, just as you learned it from him. And what they learned it from is, is, is what is the it of it? It's found in the verse bes- before this. What Epaphras taught them was the grace of God in truth. It's the central part of the gospel. The grace of God in truth. And so like last week, like Andrew showed us, it's, it is an inescapable, absolutely needed part of the gospel. The unshakable grip of sin upon us and its inescapable condemnation has been given one solution. The solution is Christ, and Christ gives it in a way we could never perform or achieve it. Salvation is only acquired as a grace gift, never an individual's fi- adjustment. Salvation is provided only and ever by grace, accessed through faith. So, but when we think of this concept of grace, um, and this is where we're going to go over to the cousin book of Ephesians, because they're covering the same things, I think we see something pretty stunning about that Graceberg in Ephesians. So I'm going to put it up here if you want. You can, turn, uh, you can turn in your own Bibles. It's actually better if you see it in your own Bible that way, you know, and I'm m- making a fake slide on you. Um, our first piece is this. The fullness of God's grace is the essence of the gospel. The fullness of God's grace is the essence of the gospel. And I mean fullness. There's a word there on purpose, fullness. If you take a look over at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says this. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we see in Colossians 1, this grace is the message that they received from Epaphras. They learned it. They, they drank it and they got it. They understood it in truth. It's what he, he gave to them. And in Ephesians, Paul's saying, this is that glorious grace to the praise of it, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the grace concept is not ever designed by God or by apostles to be some kind of deep nugget that only the extra special have access to or only the extra special really understand. It's supposed to be something we all understand. It's supposed to be a jewel we're all looking at. Because grace is not some really weird, detached thing. It is the goodness of by which God treats us. It is all of God's goodnesses towards us. And all, from the young to the old, are supposed to understand grace and love the grace. But it's really stunning when you read about grace in Ephesians 1, verse 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's so little in all of Ephesians 1 about the trip, the grace trip to God. Almost all of Ephesians 1 is about what you get in God. That is the grace of Ephesians chapter 1. Um, read with me in, in, um, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 6 and forward. Uh, sorry, this is verses 4, 4 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, made us happy, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. So number one, Look, look at the things that he's calling grace. He has 
blessed us. He's brought joy to us. That's that word there, makaroi, literally to make happy. The first way he does it, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So grace element number one, he chose a Christian. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, just in case it goes through your mind, he goes, well, what about a non-Christian? It's not talking about them. This is you. This is you, Christian. God saying through Apostle Paul, you. Grace to you, just as before the foundations of the world, he put his finger on you. I said, I want that one. I want, I want that one. And that is kind when the God of heaven does that. So grace number one, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And so not only does he say, I want her, but she's going to be holy and blameless. It says should there, probably bad translation, it's not. It's, it's wood. It is clearly wood. She would be holy and blameless before me. So I want that one, and that one's going to be absolutely transformed. She will not be the same, and she will be before me in pure holiness and pure blamelessness. Third, in love, he predestined us for adoption. So not only does he say, I want you, child of God, and I'm going to change you, child of God. Third, I am, here's your new position. Not just an enemy who is then forgiven and put in the clink for a little while, but not just like let go as like a roamer in my, my, my kingdom and not just then as a citizen in my kingdom or a ruler of my kingdom, but brought all the way into adopted as a son or daughter by God. You go from enemy to son or daughter of God like that. That's a world of difference, right? And we talked about it a couple times about the significance and the saints before and the brothers and sisters in the Lord. So the third piece of grace in this is that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ and then according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so he's saying, like, look at these graces. Look, look not so much at the pathway to it, which is grace, but look at where you're going. Look at how amazingly well you're treated. And this is just the first four verses of this passage. And then it goes on to say a little bit about the journey. In him, I won't read it to you guys, but in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, oh, actually, let me just slide. Here we go. Uh, we have redemption, forgiveness of sins in 1-7. Look at more of the Graceburg. Next, next one, verse 14. An inheritance and the spirit as the down payment. In verse 19, immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Verse 22, we as the church, we possess Jesus. Jesus is ours and we are his. 2.6, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then in 2.7, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Which that last one is just like a pointer sign to further icebergs. Just the immeasurable riches. I mean, just like a field of glory. So the grace of God is so important, not simply because it is how we are brought to God. The grace of God is super important because it is the goodness of God that is promised to you. When we say it's all of grace, it's all about grace, we're not just simply saying, woohoo, we're just simply saved by grace. We are bathed under the goodness and the generosity of God. And in Ephesians 1, almost all of it points to your new status in him now and what you will experience in the times to come. Grace is an amazing, an amazing thing. 
It's meant to draw out of us to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his beautiful, wondrous, unfathomable goodness that he is pouring out on us. And it deserves special attention in our teaching. So, if we're thinking rightly about it, as believers, that's what we're being instructed about. That's what they got in Colossians. They understood the grace in truth, and it came to their hearts. They got it. They got it. And that message of grace is exactly, textually, in that passage, is exactly what Epaphras was bringing to them. It's a highlight in what we are instructing people in Jesus. It's the highlight of our mission. So some of this becomes my question. What, what are we pitching to people? <laughs> what, are we, what are we pitching to people? You know, are we, are we, are we telling them just an escape um, just a, just a, a pathway, and we mentioned grace, you know, like salvation by faith, and we say it's of God's grace, whatever, but, but maybe that's why we're not interested in telling more people about this, it's because we don't think about this. We're not thinking about God's, God's been thinking of you for thousands and thousands of years before the foundations of the earth, like, you, Christian, have been in his mind with like intimate care and detail. And he's been planning about bringing you to the table, now seated at the table. The language is all there, right? And he's going to pour this out for you. He's going to raise you up. He's going to give you power. And it says, the glorious riches of the inheritance you get. What is that? I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot. But it's everywhere in the Bible, right? Memorizing some of, of, of Psalm, there's one there like that. But all this good stuff that the Lord is going to pour out on you and lavish the riches of his graces on you. If we saw that and we see that all the goodness we have right now is but the tippy, tippy, tip, tip of all of this. And this becomes lovely. This becomes worth everything. And then when you think of your neighbor and your friend, um, don't you want that for them? Like, what's, what's the good moment in your mind? Is the good moment in your mind when your friend, like, shows up at church? Is the good moment in your mind when, you're, when your parents like, get that sense of, oh, it's okay. It's the good moment in mind that when, when they die, that we don't cry as much. Um, or is the good moment like just like visioning, I've got a neighbor I'm picturing right now. I'm not going to say the person's name. But like envisioning that person like dealing with and coming to grips with, this is incredible that though I am like I am, he did this for me. And this is incredible that though I am like I am naturally, that this is what he's going to do for me. And in the same way that I sit with uh, us as a church family and I hear all the time, uh, kind of stunning what I discovered today or what I rediscovered for the 31st time, that all of this is coming and this love is that hot for me. Man, well, how sweet would it be for my friend to see that? How sweet would it be for him to not only know... The, the, the grace of transport from darkness to light, but the grace of the flourishing in the life and the light of Christ. So I think we have to dive into this. When we think of grace, quit think of it simply as like, well, by grace I got here and keep here. But now, look at the depths and the riches of the grace poured out on you now, and it's just the start, folks. All the sweet goodnesses. Okay, it's a repeat story, sorry, for those of you guys that hang out with me a lot. The fall. Um, I keep seeing these things, these colors. Well, there's only a few of them left right now. But they keep getting me. They're so good that when I'm driving, it kind of stops me. It stops my mind. Not a lot stops my mind. I'm not saying I'm smart. I'm just saying I'm like really distracted. <laughs> um, but but these, some of these fall colors, I mean, literally just stop it. 
And I have found myself irrepressibly praying praise out loud to the Lord. Um, sometimes when I'm trying to deer hunt, sometimes when I'm changing lanes on the 71, like, oh, come on, Lord, look at that one. Like, that's just generous. Like, you know, it's kind of ambery red colors that are kind of fluorescent. It just, it just stops me and makes me pray because I really find out, like, it's, I'm really finding something so good that it doesn't just um, pass me to the next. Most of my good things just kind of get me ready for the next, but some kind of stop me. <clears throat> what I'm tasting is I'm tasting the edges of that stuff, the good stuff, the real stuff. And because and that stuff's bigger than this. And what I can see with my eyeball out my tinted window of my FJ Cruiser stops my mind, stops my mouth, stops my wandering. It strikes me that well. And that is just the tip of all of that. This is where we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so we can see the beauties of that and dive into that more and more. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. So I would like you to bow your heads, and I'm just going to lead you through praying for a few things, okay? So would you just please bow your heads with me, and I just go before the Lord, and I want to invite you to thank Him for these graces that I read. And I'm going to give you about 10, 15, 10 seconds each one. Whew. Father, by your grace alone, I have the forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus. True or false, thank him. Thank you for this grace. Even as you chose me in him before the foundation of the world, that I would be holy and blameless before you. For this one, you predestined me for adoption to yourself as a son and daughter through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will, not mine. Thank you for the redemption and forgiveness. Thank you for the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You might as well ask him to pop your eyes open for that one. So you get it more. Thank him for the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Verse 19. Thank him that he gave Christ as head over all things to us as the church. Thank him that you are now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. However that works, you are, and that's special. Thank him for that. And then thank him for this enormous pipeline that just fades in the distance. Thank him that he is going to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus forever. And we all said, thank you, Lord. Amen. God's grace is to be central in instruction and understanding in, in all believers because it is the motivation by which God's word bears fruit in our lives and increases in effect. God's grace is everything. And um, so think about that a lot.
And as you are talking to the people, your friends, they need God's grace. Yes, they need God's grace to get to God, but they need the grace of God they find in God. It is a whole new life. It makes sense of all these things that Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That life is the life of unfathomable grace that he pours out on us. All right, point number two. Um, there's honor in being Christ's servant. There's honor in being Christ's servant. These are a lot more simple than that last one. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And this is rather simple. But like our King, Savior, friend, and brother Jesus, if we are thinking of believing rightly, we delight in living, not as people who do acts of service, but people who are actually servants. And we consider the term servant to be a highest honor. I think you probably know you've been a Christian for a long time, reading the Bible for a long time. When you read that, our fellow servant, and you don't see how weird that sounds. Like he's promoting somebody, and the way he promotes them is like they're a fellow servant. And for us, we're like, yes. But I think when you're first reading the Bible for the first time, you're like, what? Um, you think like fellow El Presidente, uh, fellow high and exalted one. No, no, fellow servant. Jesus came to serve. Paul calls himself servant. He's got fellow servants. <clears throat> he actually identifies his inner circle, the power players, as fellow servants. It's what pastors are supposed to do to churches, is be servants. They oversee by serving and loving. E even catch this, um, angels call themselves fellow servants. Um, I didn't put these slides up, I don't think. Uh, but just consider these words. Um, this is in Revelation 22. A nine. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I I've, I've apparently have um, quickly deleted that text. But two, two times, trust me. You know, actually, don't trust me. You should go read it yourself. Okay, two times in the end of Revelation. John, Jesus' BFF, the one who leaped on Jesus' bosom. Awkward, but we know what it means, okay? Um, two times, John is walking around with Jesus, or walking up there, dealing with these, these visions, those kind of things. And, and Jesus, who he knows very well, he sees Jesus, and it, it blows his mind. Falls over like a dead man. Jesus says, peace, get up, right? And then Jesus assigns him um, a dossier angel who's walking around all these visions. And two times John is so overwhelmed by this that John falls down. John, he's one of the apostles. You'd think he knows better than this, but he's seen things that are blowing his mind. You would do probably worse and I would do far worse. Bows down with the angel. And the angel two times, same language, says, no, 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 no. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. I'm only your fellow, I'm your fellow servant. I'm your fellow servant. So in the kingdom of God, serving the living God is a fantastic thing. And being called a servant is a highest accolade that this person so completely puts themselves at the disposal of the king. They're called a servant. And it's a beautiful thing. So we are servants in the gospel because we have given up our independence from God in exchange for rightly and completely belonging to our maker. Rightly and completely belonging to our maker. His purpose, his mission, his desires define and direct our lives. And it's most often works out on us being spent on his children and the others that are on his heart and mind. And, and might I just say, it's true, and I, and I honestly have experienced this. In this service, we find the sweetest and final answers to the longing to be significant and impactful and to matter. In the gospel, you're loved. 
set, done, worth of Christ in you. But I would say then as you follow Jesus and you serve him and you're saying, here I am, Lord, send me. Do what you want with me. As you step into that, you will taste the sweetest and deepest moments of significance and impact and matter. And I think a lot of us in this room openly wrestle with that and desire that in us. And a lot of us in this room soon will. You want to matter. You don't want to just be an air filter on this planet. We got enough of those. We want to actually have an impact. Like just there's something designed in us where we, we're supposed to matter. We're supposed to have an impact. And as we are servants of the living God, that's where we find it and we taste it. Already accepted and loved by Jesus and now at his service. So my question for you, and I'm not going to ask you to pray this time. I will one more second here. My question for you, do you talk to the Father? Number one, has this become alive in you? Have, have you made this clear before the Lord? Like, Lord, I don't belong to you. I want to belong to you. I want you to be my God. I want the work of Jesus to save me. As a couple of us were talking about, I want to be your girl by the work of Jesus, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That has to become clear first because we have to become saved, have to become a child of God. But do you, Christian, do you ever talk to the Father affirming to him freshly that you and the whole of you belongs to him and that you are his servant? Um, do you have your own way of saying, as others have said, yes, Lord, here I am. Uh, what is your good pleasure and mine? Uh, do you make it that pattern? And I would encourage you to make it a pattern in your life to continually bring your life before the Lord and submit it as a servant of the Lord. Because what will happen is, even with a, a right heart where you've kind of sorted those issues through before the Lord, resting your gospel identity, perceiving God's direction for you, a lot of times, what, after a long process of that, rightly done with God's people, we we'll sometimes just over, over time, uh, we, we run down that path so far we don't notice that we've unplugged from that. And now it's, now it's our path, right? Well, God called me to print newspapers. Well, God called me, well, maybe God did call you that a year ago, right? But have we checked back in with the Lord of heaven who's not tired and whose mission is not over to freshly check and say, Lord, here I am. Um, my life is short. You've got, a, you've got an expiration date for me. That's your business. Um, use me like you want to use me. And maybe it's momming. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's doctoring. Maybe it's whatever in the sun. I'm yours. Use me. Don't tell him what you're good at. Let him tell you what, it, what you're gifted at. And let him guide you and direct you. Do it with your church family. Do it in your MCs. Ask the Lord and say, like, Lord, here I am. Use us. Use us the whole MC. The grace of God, when truly understood at the heart level, moves us to love being a designated servant of God, commissioned for the good of others. Our final point this morning is this, that the Spirit must be our source. The Spirit must be our source. If you look, one, 7 and 8 again, just as you learn from Epaphras, what they learn? The grace, the grace berg. From Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Funny deal. Okay, this is a Bible study trivia. I'm, I'm puzzled by something. Ephesians and Colossians are like right next to each other. I mean, there's a books in between, but they're like the written brother-sister book. Ephesians is loaded with stuff about the Spirit. This is the only time in the book of Colossians that the Spirit of God is mentioned. And I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't know where to go with that. I don't, I don't actually don't think there's a really good answer yet, but I'm just saying. Okay, so but here we have the one time the Spirit of God is mentioned in this book. 
and he attaches it rather significantly. He said, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, so while we talked two weeks ago about the nature of, of that love, that that love will be shaped like the love of Jesus towards the object of Jesus' love, right? When, when he has a compliment, he says, I've been so thankful ever since I heard of your genuine faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. So shaped like Jesus towards the objects of particular of Jesus' love. And that was a dashboard, a, a, central, a central gauge of the dashboard he judges a, a church by. This right here, he's highlighting the, the, the nature of that love, where that love sourced itself from. It sourced him from the Spirit. You don't have to turn over there because I've got a slide for you. If we think over in Ephesians 3, 16 to 17, it mentions once again yet in a new way this faith-love combination, but it talks about the Spirit being connected. In Ephesians 3, 16 to 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And so there's what happens. The Spirit, the power through the Spirit, then yields true faith and true love. The leading work of the fruit of the Spirit in us is love. Is love. So the Spirit, according to Jesus, is a very integral part of his plan for us as believers. He said in John 16, 17, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Spirit, will not come to you, but if I do go, I will send him. And so for Paul, it's very, for, for Jesus, it's very, very important that we have this Spirit. It's part of the new covenant that God gives us in the New Testament. We now have the Spirit in a way that our Old Testament brothers and sisters did not have the Spirit, and we need him in our lives. And the Spirit does something. And the number one way you can tell if the Spirit is working in your life is love. So all believers, the moment they come to know Jesus, they receive the Spirit, and you can't lose the Spirit. Every last one of us that have our faith in Jesus, we've received the Spirit. But the activity level of the Spirit, the word in scriptures used fullness, right, the fullness of the Spirit, that goes up and down on any given day. He continues to lead us and work in us, the telltale sign of the Spirit is present and working in a believer is love. And a love like Christ, which is grace and truth, and a love for whom Christ loves. So what do you do if you don't see your heart loving like Christ for the objects of which Christ has loved? It's really important for you to be able to go, um, you ought to be able all the time, be able to look at the back seat and, and of your heart, if you're trying to figure out your heart, and go, all right, I got my theology right here, and look at the back seat, and go, is there a bunch of love in that back seat? Right, is there, is that, as that's the first fruit of love. And if you look back there, and you don't see love for the people around you, love for God's people, love for the people of mission, if you don't see that, what do you do? Number one, we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Number one, recognize and hit your knees and don't fake it. Like, if something's wrong, um, there's one who can help you. His name is Jesus. And he'll help you through the Spirit. So number one, just recognize it and hit your knees. Number two, think clearly in your gospel identity. So when you look back there and you don't see that love, and you won't from time to time, because, because you're not in heaven yet. So you're perfectly justified, and you are being sanctified. Well, lo and behold, you're going to find yourself down here in these little troughs, right? And that's the moment you look over there in God's grace, you're like, oh, man, I, I actually, I, I see I should, but I don't. So in that moment, what happens by God's Spirit 
is we recognize that. We remember identity in Jesus that we are fully sanctified, right? We recognize that there's a low spot in our heart right now where our heart is not really trusting the Lord. The Spirit of God is not being sought. The Spirit of God is not being followed. We're not taking the power of the Spirit of God. We're not paying attention to the objects of God's love. So we rest again in his love for us that we are, by grace, brought to God already. And then we ask him for help. Only he helps. Only he helps. But we're not asking him for help so that he will once again love us or like us. He already loves us tremendously, fully. He never diminishes that. So then we pray. We ask him for that. We ask him, Father, please help me by your spirit. So the, the work of the spirit in the life of the believer is not a, um, simply treated in the New Testament as something like, well, open up your bag and see what you got in there. Right? We're invited in Luke 11, verse 13, it says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's the, high, it's the highest answer of any prayer that God himself would come and abide with you in power. And so he says he likes to do it. I would really encourage you, brothers and sisters, make this a very regular part of your, your life, maybe like six times a day, saying, Lord, please refresh the work of the Spirit in me. Move me to look for the leading of the Spirit. Give me help to, to follow the leading of the Spirit. Guide me in my conversations. Show me who you want me to love. Bring to me by the power of your Spirit your priorities of how I pursue you and God's people and mission. Like, let me have a great stirring up of your Spirit and guide me and lead me. So I just want to close out by inviting you to close your, bow your heads again, and we're going to pray. Let me give a little moments for you to consider this. Father, am I marked by the lead fruit of the Spirit, love? Particularly a love for all of your church family. Am I obviously marked by that in my heart? Only you will know that with him. Second, please, please give me an overwhelming work of your Spirit's fullness and power in my heart. Give me the grace to watch, to seek him, to watch for him, to notice him, and taste the joy and confidence that comes from him. Father, please use the Spirit to open my eyes to see how wonderful you are, how deeply and passionately you love me and all your children. Rip off the fog that obscures this great iceberg and this new land of grace that is just abundant. Let us see the wonders of it, Father. Let us see it together. Create in us, not just me, but create in us a heart like yours and a love like yours. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for teaching us. I pray that you would please uh, lift our eyes in glory and wonder to the cross of Jesus and what you did to bring us to this new land of grace. As we celebrate communion and celebrate the work of grace to bring us there. Father, please, by the power of your spirit, um, Open our eyes. Give us delight in this. Refresh our hearts. We love you, and we thank you for all of your graces.
And we thank you for allowing us to be your fellow servants. We thank you so much for giving us your spirit. And we lean into him and look forward to you helping us again and again and again. And all my brothers and sisters said, amen.